Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. That's on page 1383 in your pew Bibles. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. His visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of the dream. He said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. And the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of its first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and I asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war 
against the saints in defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. We'll be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue all three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change and set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half time. But the court will sit, and the power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord. Friends in Jesus Christ, some of you are thinking right now, this is the stuff we talk about at Christmas. And I'm just going to be honest with you, these next couple of weeks are going to be a little tough. You just heard the kind of stuff we'll be looking at and talking about. Animals, beasts, horns with eyes, horns that speak. Pretty strange stuff. How do we begin to get our arms around it? I hope you kept your Bibles open. Um, We'll be looking at some of this stuff this morning. But I'm hopeful that what might help is to think of what Daniel's vision is all about and what the book of Daniel is doing here is it's sort of flipping the script. It's flipping the script that was familiar to the people that he was speaking to. Think of it this way. Um, There's a man who lives in Boise, Idaho. I don't know if he's still doing this, but I know he was a couple of years ago. He was dressing up like Buddy the Elf, and he was going to the local mall, and he had the whole gamut of costume, right? He had the curly hair. He had the little elf hat. He had the tights and the whole deal. He did the you know, the escalator thing that Buddy does in the movie. And he basically was acting like Buddy the Elf to everyone there, right? To the little kids, he was handing out candy canes, he was helping them with their Christmas lists, all of that kind of stuff. Some people thought he was pretty cute. Some people thought he was a little disturbed. But what he was doing, really, was simply living out the Christmas script that our culture gives us today, right? I mean, what is the script of of Christmas that our society grabs hold of? It's Santa Claus, right? Have you ever seen Santa Claus? It's, uh, It's flying reindeer. It's 
uh, walking snowmen who lead parades. It's, uh, it's, it's flying sleighs, all of those things, right? Simply living out that script leads to Buddy the Elf at the mall. There's another script that we've been handed for Christmas that we as God's people are called to live out, right? But when you think about the script that, that we have, the story that we have, it's, it's not much more believable than the script of our culture. It's a script that talks about choirs of angels in the sky. It's a script that talks about a virgin birth. It's a script that talks about God becoming flesh. It's a script about hope that there can be peace on earth one day. And we as God's people have been called to live out that script. And so we've been called to sort of flip the script of our culture and live according to an entirely different sort of script. All right? That's what Daniel is doing. The script that the people of Israel have been sold, the script that they are living in the midst of in exile, is the script that says evil has gotten too big for God. Evil has gotten too big for Yahweh. And therefore, these people will always be in exile they will always be subject to foreign kings and dictators and their gods. They will always be um, strangers in a strange land. And they will always be the ones who are sort of fingered for, you know, the good jobs. The good jobs being those like uh, cleaning the public restrooms, scraping the gum off all of the desks at school, fighting the king's wars digging holes for all of the king's enemies. That's what you do in exile. That's the script that God's people are living. What Daniel is saying, what's going on in Daniel here, is the revelation of another script. Daniel is flipping the script for God's people. We, what we have here is what's called apocalyptic literature. The Greek word apocalypto simply means to unveil or to reveal. What Daniel is doing is he's revealing or unveiling to us a world that is behind the world that we see, the world that we know. The exiles knew a certain world, okay? They thought that's the only world there really was, and Daniel is saying no, there's a world that's actually more real than the world that you are experiencing today. And, and Daniel says, this is the world that as God's people, I'm calling you to live out of. There's a different script that we need to live out of. Now, we can't get into that whole script this morning that Daniel is showing us, but there are three elements to that script that we find in Daniel 7 that I want to call your attention to. Maybe they're not immediately obvious, right? They're kind of the scene behind the scene. But there are three things 
that make up this script. The true human, the true judge, and the true shepherd. Okay, hang on to those three things today. Read through the text again later. Maybe they'll be a little more visible. At least that's my hope. The true human, the true judge, and the true shepherd. Let's look at the true human a moment, okay? As Daniel explains his dream, there is one difference, I think, that becomes quickly obvious to us. Daniel dreams about four beasts, okay? Four animals, really. Now, in verse 17, we're told that these four animals, these four beasts, represent kings. Don't get too tied to that. Later on, we'll hear that they're also kingdoms. I don't think there's really a contradiction that's going on there. The kings are considered sort of as founding monarchs of their particular kingdom. And what usually happens when we begin to read this part of Scripture is we begin to think, okay, I'm going to put all of these kings and kingdoms in place, in order, historically, and and as we do that, we're going to figure out the future and figure out the details for the end of time. And it just so happens that the four kingdoms that are mentioned in Daniel 7, they actually match up pretty well with the four kingdoms that we read about in Daniel 2 when we read about Nebuchadnezzar's vision of, of the image that he had seen. And different metals make up that image, right? And there were four kingdoms that were described there. These, these kingdoms in Daniel 7 match up pretty well with those. And so most commentators agree that the four kingdoms that Daniel is talking about are, are Babylon, for one, the one that he's experiencing himself. After the Babylonian Empire came the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire. And the fourth empire would be Rome. Now, I really have no dispute with that interpretation. The only thing I would add is that when you read Daniel 7, that fourth kingdom seems far more complex and complicated even than the kingdom of Rome. And it seems like, in a sense, Daniel is showing us a picture of all the kingdoms that will come after Babylon right to the very end. Okay? And that last kingdom is going to be a pretty scary place. But... As readers of Scripture, we often get so tied up in those kinds of details and trying then to determine the future and what's going to happen next that sometimes we miss what's more obvious, okay? And what I don't want us to miss this morning is the contrast here. So if you take a step back, As Daniel begins to explain to us his vision, he describes these beasts. He says the first one is like a lion. The second one is like a bear. The third one is like a leopard. The fourth is is an animal that's so different, Daniel really doesn't even know how to describe it other than it's got these ten horns. But then, when you get to verse 13... We read of another coming one, and this one who comes is like a son of man. He's not like a lion, he's not like a bear, not like a leopard, he's like a son of man. He comes as a human. The others are animals, 
The others are beasts, but there is one who is coming who is human. Okay? There's a contrast and comparison going on here. The beasts, they come out of the sea, all of them, that place of, of, of chaos, that place of turmoil. It was a frightening place to the ancients. That's where the beasts come from. They come out of the earth. They are earthly figures. They are kings. They're royalty, and yet their kingdoms are all limited in time and in scope. This one who is like a son of man comes riding with the clouds. Okay? He comes from that place of divinity, the place of God. He doesn't come from the earth. He comes from God. He's a divine figure. He is also a king, except his kingdom, his rule, has no boundaries at all. It's an eternal kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It will be the final kingdom. But what we have to begin to see here is the contrast that Daniel is laying out for us, the contrast in the character of these kingdoms that he's showing us. When he talks about these beasts, he talks about beastly kingdoms. Look at the things that describe these kingdoms. Daniel says they terrify, they frighten, they're about domination and power. They crush, they devour, they trample underfoot. Those are the kinds of things that characterize these earthly kingdoms, these beastly kingdoms. Dale Davis says that, you know, sometimes we have to even descend into the details to really understand apocalyptic literature like this. When we talk about beastly kingdoms, what kind of kingdoms are we talking about? Well, just put a little thought into history, right? You can mention people like Joseph Stalin. You can mention people like Adolf Hitler. But you can even mention things that have sort of slipped our history screens, right? Did you know that, that back in 1914, there were about 2.1 million Armenians who lived in Turkey? 2.1 million. By 1922, so that's just eight years later, there were only 388,000. It means that over 1.6 million of those Armenians, many of them Christians, were put to death in the cruelest of ways. When you read that history, it sickens your stomach. And that's not an isolated story. Talk to any historian and they will go through the history, the dictators, the nations, even the Western countries, the kinds of things that we do in our own country that you could say are beastly. Compare that, okay? Compare that to the human, to the one who is coming who will rule, shall we say, humanely. According to the Genesis story, the first human being, Adam, Adam was a royal figure. Adam was created and then given sovereignty. He was to rule the earth. He was to subdue the earth. But he was to subdue it as an image bearer of God. He was a representative of his Lord. 
And so he was to tend the earth and care for it and to nurture its creatures and to help them become fruitful and become everything God created them to be. That was the type of ruler that Adam was created to be. Adam failed. But what Daniel is telling us is that one is coming who is the true human, who will rule as the image bearer of God and as God really intended him to rule. He will rule with goodness and righteousness and true justice. And friends, part of what we need to learn from a scripture like this, a couple of things, all right? One is to not be so gullible as to think that the next ruler, the next regime, the next political party, or whoever that is, they are going to have the answer for all of us as human beings. They are going to be the ones who bring in the kingdom of peace. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I think it was Barbara Tuckman who wrote at the end of her book on the American Revolution. She said, revolutions produce other men, not new men. And that's Daniel's point, at least one of his points. Don't put your hope in men who behind the scenes are really beasts because they're sinful. All of us are sinful. And we're all the same in that regard. We're not new men. We are other men. That's one thing we have to learn here. But the other is we have to begin to learn how to discern and reject the kingdoms that manifest beastly characteristics. We have to reject the kings and kingdoms that promote violence, and lies, and subjugation, and torture, and all of those things. And at the same time, we have to discern and welcome those kings and kingdoms that promote righteousness, and justice, and goodness, as our God would have them do. We have a true human who has come and will come again. The second part of this, the second element to this flipped script is the true judge. Okay, the true judge. Again, as you begin to read through the vision here, Daniel walks us through these, these beasts, right? One beast, two beasts, three beasts, four beasts, and then he walks us through not just the beast, but the horns on the beast, and then we get to this little horn who, who has eyes, and he speaks arrogantly, and all of this stuff, and if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, I want to know more about this little horn, okay? Um, it's the dark side of me, I guess, but it's like, give me some more detail here. Tell me more. Tell me what we can expect. When can we expect it? All of those things. The text doesn't go there. The text doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, the text points us in a completely different direction. The text points us up. 
Right at that point, the text says, no, we're not going to go there. And the text points us up where? To the throne room of heaven and the ancient of days and the thrones that are there. Not just one throne, the thrones. It's a courtroom. And the ancient of days, we're to assume, is joined on those thrones by the Son of Man. And what we are told is that the ancient of days, the Son of Man, will hold court and they will judge. In other words, all of us will ultimately be accountable to God. That's what Daniel wants us to know. Little horn, scary guy, but... What I want you to see is that all of us will be accountable to the Ancient of Days. What's going on here? Try to think of a way to explain this. Um, this past week, there was a, another tragic school shooting, right, in the state of Michigan. We've all heard that by now. <clears throat> student killing fellow students. And as often as the case in something like this, one of the early questions was, all right, are we going to try this, uh, this student as a child or as an adult? Okay, will they be tried in court as a child or as an adult? In our culture today, we always face that question with teenagers. Okay, and I don't want to offend any of the teenagers here today, so please just bear with me for a moment. But there used to be a day when there, were, there was no such thing as teenagers. You were either a child or an adult. Okay? Our culture today has created this sort of in-between time, this time in which we're in limbo. And it's a time when it's very hard to determine what are people actually accountable for. Okay? Are, are, are students accountable for breaking curfew? Are they accountable, and how accountable are they for, you know, drinking and driving? How accountable are they when they shoot up their school? There is this time when we sort of say, you know, um, these people are in between, and we're not sure how accountable you are for your actions. Now, I think it would be great to have that discussion, and I'd love to have it someday with, with teenagers, and just ask them, what is it, what's it like to live in a subculture like that when you're really not sure if you're accountable for your actions or not, if anyone is going to hold you accountable? And thinking back to when I was a teenager, my first thought is, that would be pretty cool. <clears throat> um, I mean, you, know, you could get away with a lot of stuff. There's no one holding me accountable. But but then you take that a little bit further, right? And you think, all right, if that's, if that's the subculture that I'm living in, what that means also is that the scary people are also not accountable for their actions. And what happens then is those people actually become larger than life. They become people who don't, have to report to anyone, okay? So they can tell lies and nobody's going to say, you're a liar. 
those are lies. That's not true. Because there's no one big enough to stand up and do that. There's no one big enough to stand up and say, you cannot do that. And so what happens is the intimidators become even more intimidating. And the rest of us sort of grow quiet. Well, I'm not going to be the one who stands up. I'm not going to be the one who fights this. What Daniel is describing to us here is that kind of culture, not just among teenagers, but everywhere, where there's no accountability. There's no one who says that's wrong. You can't do that. And Daniel is telling us that actually there is one like that. There is one who will come and who will hold every one of us accountable. He will hold the intimidators accountable for all of their intimidation. They will answer to someone one day. But Daniel also is speaking to all of us as God's people who allow ourselves to be intimidated. Intimidated into doing the kinds of things, believing the kinds of things, going along with the lies that are out there. Daniel says there is a day when we will have to confront or be confronted by the judge as well and asked, why? Why did you let them intimidate you? There is one who will come as the true judge. That should be a comfort for us. That should also be a little frightening for us. That we are actually called to live out God's will and not be intimidated and to recognize that there is, <clears throat> there is someone bigger than the people who scare us right now. Finally, there is a true human, there is a true judge. There is also a true shepherd. Okay? There is a true shepherd. We don't have time to get into all the intricacies of that fourth beast and the little horn. Maybe we can do that someday. It would be nice just to sit down and have a discussion on all of that. But suffice it to say, it's pretty scary stuff. Okay? When you read it in the book of Daniel, there's really no way to get around the fact that it's pretty scary stuff. Verse 21 says, The little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. I don't know how you make that into something that's not frightening. Verse 25, And the saints shall be given into his hand for a time. Even though it's, it's God who allows it to happen, it's God who is in control, it doesn't change the fact that it still happens or it will happen. So it's, it's hard stuff to imagine. It's hard stuff to deal with. But, friends, we cannot miss the hope, the hope that is also here. There's so much that's not clear, but the hope 
is clear. And that is that the one who is standing in the end is not the little horn. Rather, it's the Son of Man. And God wants us to know this. In the end, it's the Son of Man who is standing, who is the victor, who cannot be defeated. And I also want you to catch here the allusion to David. Okay? Remember David, the little boy shepherd? The one who had to go to King Saul to convince Saul that he really was the one who ought to be able to fight Goliath, that monster. Remember what David told Saul, how he stated his case? If you don't remember, this is what he said. He said, he said Saul, when the lion and the bear came and carried off one of my father's sheep, I went and I rescued that sheep from its mouth. And when the lion and the bear, when they turned on me, I struck and I killed them. And then he said, and I will do the same to this uncircumcised Philistine. And you can read there in parentheses, the big scary monster. And the point here is that the true shepherd, the true son of David, does not run and will not run from the lion or the bear or the fourth beast or even death. The true shepherd will stand firm and he will protect his sheep even at the cost of his own life. And God wants his people to know that. That that is our hope. That we have a Savior who is the true shepherd. He will not flee, no matter what comes his way, no matter how scary it is. He will not flee. He will not leave his flock. He will be right here with us. He is Emmanuel with my people forever and ever and ever. And so how do we live? We live with that kind of hope. And that's how we pray, and that's how we work with this shepherd in mind, following his ways, his character. And we ask ourselves, can there ever be peace on earth? Can there ever really be justice, real justice? Can there ever be a place where husbands don't beat their wives? Will there ever be a place where, where all children grow up with parents? Can there be a place where those who struggle with addictions can really be free and can walk tall in the kingdom of God? Will you take a look at our shepherd and you say, yes, there can and I'm going to live in that hope. And I'm going to pray in that hope. And I'm going to work in that hope. That's the script that I'm going to live by.
Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word of life. And we pray that as your people, you will fill us with your spirit, that we may cling to the story that you have given us. The story that's behind the story we see in this world. The story that there is one like a son of man who is coming and indeed has come. And he will come again. And he will come to reign. And he will come to judge. And he will come to shepherd his people as only the Son of God can. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.